0: mornings, but I'm not usually here on Sunday mornings. But it is a privilege that is not lost on me, and I pray it's a blessing to you uh, as we get started this morning. Um, And what an exciting time it is. We look at, you know, this video we just saw about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and remembering that 100% of those funds goes to supporting missionaries on the ground, and we get a chance to be a part of what God is doing among the nations when we give to that offering. That's uh, exciting. If you would... um, for just a moment, I want to share with you um, a story that is, is fresh on my mind. Because the last time I uh, filled in for someone on a Sunday morning, it was for a dear friend of mine, really a mentor in the ministry who pastors a church just outside of Louisville. And I won't tell you where it is, but he asked if I would fill in for him. He says, and he called me, he said, Eric, we have two services on a Sunday morning. And I said, that, that's fine, I can do that. He said, now I want to tell you that this congregation's a little different. And I'm thinking... Every congregation's a little different from the other. He said, now, as you're preaching and you look out there, and it seems like they're not listening to you. Now, what I expected him to say, to finish that sentence, I expected him to say, don't worry, they are. That's just how they present themselves, how they take in information. What he actually told me was, if it seems like they're not listening to you, they're not. So, but as the author of Hebrews says, as he wrote the letter of Hebrews uh, I am convinced of better things concerning you, my beloved. So <laughs> um, but that was an interesting time, and it, it ended up being fine. They did listen, so it was a good time to be with them. Um, as we come to this time of year, I, I absolutely love, I'm like a kid at Christmas, and I love this time of year, and I love all the things that we can get into. And my family is rich in tradition. We have so many traditions that, our, that we doggedly hang on to that our kids will not let us let go because these traditions are connected to different times and different seasons in our lives, and they're good things. And I'm reminded that this time of year is a very, very busy time, and we can get involved in many, many good things. But it's a good reminder for us, especially as we come to this time of year, to remember that good things can become detractors to essential things. As we come to this time of year, the essential things are what we need to keep first and foremost as we celebrate. Um, We're going to look today, if you would go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 1, we're going to look on this first Sunday of Advent at the miracle of the Incarnation. And you may be thinking immediately, well, Mark's Gospel does not contain a birth narrative, and that's usually the launching pad we, we take off from to discuss the Incarnation. Um, and that's okay, because Mark does deal with the Incarnation, as we'll see in just a moment. But if you look at Matthew and Luke and the other Gospels, they contain the Incarnation. They contain a direct dealing with, with the Incarnation, but they do it differently. Each, each Gospel deals with it in a different way. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, he immediately starts with a genealogy which connects Christ to David and then back to Abraham very concerned with the lineage of the promised Messiah for the Jewish people. If you look in the, in the book of Luke, his uh, dealing with the incarnation is, is much broader. The genealogy comes a little later, and he connects Christ all the way back to Adam, but he deals with sort of the concern on the ground with the people. as you were, We are introduced to people such as Simeon, who see the promised Messiah and proclaim that he has seen the Lord's great hope in the light of the nations. So these are different and they have a different purpose but Mark's gospel does not contain any accounting of the birth of Christ but that's okay his his perspective is more all-encompassing and broad which is in keeping with the purpose of his gospel and most commentaries on the gospel of Mark do not deal with the incarnation which is unfortunate because if the incarnation is essential when i say incarnation that's the enfleshment of you will of the second person of the godhead god taking on human flesh in the person of Christ to come and redeem a people for himself. And most commentaries in the Gospel of Mark do not deal with this, but if this is is an essential part of our understanding of the fullness of the Gospel, and it is, then we need to understand that Mark is not overlooking or discounting the miracle of the Incarnation, but diving immediately into its significance by looking at what Jesus did as the last Adam. Or as we sang this morning, the second Adam from above. This is absolutely essential. It answers the why of the incarnation. So as we look at our passage today, there are two things I want you to keep in mind. Where I'm going to read from verse 1 down through verse 13. We're only going to look at verses 9 through 13. But I want you to keep these two things in mind as we look at the baptism and then the temptation of Jesus. Number one is this. Baptism has everything to do with judgment and new creation. And then this issue of temptation has everything to do with obedience and display of perfect righteousness. That's very important for us as Jesus is functioning for his people as the second Adam, or what the Bible calls the last Adam. So we don't find ourselves this morning as we celebrate Christmas and start thinking about that coming as quickly as it is, We don't find ourselves gathered around the manger, but standing on the banks of the Jordan as we watch what Jesus does. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. This is what we read. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Did you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the great privilege we have in gathering together under the banner of Christ to behold your glory. And we would ask in this moment that you would indeed, in our hearts and minds, set aside every competing thought and affection and focus us on the truth of your word and write it indelibly on our hearts and minds. Change us in this time. Show us your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So why does Mark begin his gospel this way? He's a very rapid-fire, quickly-paced guy. But why does he start where he starts? This episode that he begins with here does not come in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark until chapters 3 and 4. So their handling of it, is different and the reasons for doing so is different and mark introduces his subject matter with this this phrase the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God and immediately he lays the foundation for that gospel in the ministry of John the Baptist the one who was sent before him to prepare the way and mark quotes from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 in those verses we read but remember John's ministry think of where these people were John's ministry was a reminder That everything they had done, all the religious activity, all of the clinging to heritage had not done what they hoped it would do. Every potential Messiah that came down the line was deeply flawed and so proved not to be the one they desperately needed. They were in a long season of waiting. They needed the one who would be the once for all perfect sacrifice who would remove once and for all their sin and guilt before God. They were waiting, whether they realized it or not, for the miracle of the incarnation. That God would become man and redeem them finally and fully. And what we see Jesus doing here is a vivid expression of his entire mission. It's a whisper of what he would accomplish finally on the cross and consummate fully at his return. So as we look at these two events, the baptism and the temptation of Christ, that are intricately woven together by Mark as one event, we notice that he leaves out so much that Matthew and Luke put in there for us. Why does he do that? Well, Mark is not so much concerned with what is seen in this drama, but what is unseen. The powerful reality of what is taking place beyond the rippling of the water and behind the whispering tongue of the serpent. What is actually happening here that affects you and I this morning? How could we sing, as we did earlier, Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. What does that mean? What is Jesus accomplishing for us? So to get a grip on what Mark wants us to see here, we have to recall our Old Testament promise from Genesis 3.15 that the son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And we also need to remember that the New Testament very clearly refers to Jesus as the last Adam or the second Adam. We'll say, and there's a reason we say second Adam. So, consider this: Romans 5:14. Listen to what Paul said. He says, "Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In what way? How was Adam a type of the one who was to come?" He was, Adam was a representative head of humanity. And by his obedience, we would be led into God's rest. And by his disobedience, we find ourselves under the curse. And this is a concept we struggle with. That someone would be a representative head of humanity. I've heard people say before, I wasn't there. Why am I held guilty? So this is a concept we struggle with. But this is not a concept that people in the ancient Near East would have struggled with. Because when we... And, and really... We're fine with it when we read in the Bible because if you look at a victory of an Old Testament king, is it just the king's victory or is it the victory of the entire group of people whom he represents? When an Old Testament king is defeated, is it just his defeat or is the entire group of people defeated? And what we will see is Adam functions in the garden as a king. All the language we find in Genesis is language of dominion and rule and authority. And when he fell, everyone he represented Fell. That's you and I. So we need a better second Adam. And Paul explains this, 1 Corinthians 15 22. He says this: For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, this is not, Paul does not teach universalism. What he is teaching is that as in Adam, all those he represented died because sin came into the world. That's everyone. So, in Christ, all those he represents will live. That is all the Father gives to him. That's very important. Paul is not teaching universalism here, but he's teaching the function of, of Christ as the second Adam. So, 1 Corinthians 15 45, thus it is written, the first Adam became a life, a living being. The last Adam, that is Christ, became a life giving spirit. So, what we see in Jesus as the second Adam is him walking in perfect obedience as the head of his people for their position and restoration before God, undoing what the first Adam had done. One author puts it this way, and speaking about this passage this morning, he says, "'Jesus stood where Adam stood. He reclaimed what Adam lost. The first Adam was tested in the God-blessed garden and fell.'" The second Adam was tested in the God-cursed wilderness and won. That's what we see taking place here. So we need to keep in mind the clear parallels here. as We read this passage between the fall of Adam and the victory of Christ on our behalf. That's what Mark is communicating to us this morning. So he focuses squarely on the humanity of Christ in this drama. And he brings about two things he wants us to consider. Water. And wilderness. Those are the two two events we see that explain everything. Look at verses 9 through 11. Here's where we get the water. The big question usually comes when we read this is why is it, if John's administering a baptism of repentance, why is it that Jesus, the only one who does not need to repent, undergo this rite? So remember, again, the thing we cannot miss with baptism is its association with chaos and judgment. So in Genesis 1, this is very significant. I hope you see this parallel. In Genesis 1, we find the Spirit of God hovering over the waters at creation. And then in Genesis 7, we see the waters unleashed as an act of judgment. And both of these things, both of these aspects are being pulled into focus as Jesus wades out into the Jordan to his cousin John. These are things we are meant to see. He is identifying with lost humanity that is under the just judgment of God. And as the spirit comes down and hovers over him, we understand that a new creation is being inaugurated. Jesus came to make all things new. He is undoing what Adam did. So there's a phrase here I want you to see. As we get into this this roughly A.D. 27 is when people think this took place. That makes Jesus about 30 years old when he went out to be baptized. But there's a phrase here that I want you to hang on to this morning that, that absolutely explains everything that comes after this in the Gospel of Mark and really of all the New Testament. It is this. Jesus came. This is what Advent is about. That phrase, Jesus Came should make the heart of the Christian leap for joy. Without Jesus coming in a manger, there would be no Him coming to John at the Jordan. There would be no stepping onto the battlefield to do battle with the serpent on behalf of you and I to reclaim us for the glory of God. He came for us. And let me say this. This gospel is for you. Based on the fact that every one of us is born in the first Adam, tied up in his fall, suffering his defeat, being completely wrecked before God. This gospel, this good news is for you. Please remember that. And look at this. What is it? Yeah, Jesus came where? Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. This is a 60 plus mile walk. Is there determination in this last Adam for us to undo what had been done? 60 miles. Guys, I don't even want to walk out to my car in the morning. 60 plus miles. Focus and determination. But what did he do? Here's what he did. Notice this. And very simple. And was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, Scripture, again, very clear as to the reality of the sinlessness of Jesus. Certainly Jesus was not baptized for the forgiveness of sins. John recognizes this immediately. So much so that when Jesus wades out to him, what does he tell him? Matthew tells us that he says, I should be baptized by you, yet you come to me. And then Jesus says, let it be so for now, for this is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus con- or John consented and baptized Jesus, but he knew that Jesus did not need this ritual way he had been proclaiming it so what does it symbolize and what does it show us i mean for jesus this is an act of perfect obedience to the father identifying with those he came to save it foreshadows the judgment he will experience the baptism of god's judgment he will undergo on the cross again to undo what the first adam brought but here's what he saw look in verse 10 It says, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, here's where we see, this is the site where we understand that a new creation is exploding onto the scene. Starting with a newly created people and being consummated with a new heavens and a new earth when he comes again. But Notice what he said here. It says, the Spirit descended on him. Like a dove. I realize some of your translations say as. I think it's important that we see this as like. The word is better translated like. Why is that important? Because this is not about appearance, but about demeanor. This is meant to take our minds immediately to Genesis 1. The Spirit is hovering over Christ and hovering over the waters of the Jordan, which is meant to tell us that just as at creation... God is going to act in a powerful, decisive, and irreversible way to bring about a new creation, beginning with His people. And this is what Jesus is proclaiming here. Marking out Christ as the one to bring about this new creation and empowering Him for His mission. Then look in verse 11. Here's what He heard. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now it's significant that God the Father literally tears open the heavens and makes this statement after the baptism of Christ. I mean, it's not as if God had been displeased with Jesus up to this point. So what is happening here there is something in this act of obedience this undergoing the baptism of john that moves god to tear open the heavens and say this is my son this one this is the perfect sacrifice that i take greatest pleasure in this is the one because this is looking forward to the baptism of god's judgment on christ for his people. So think about it. Jesus would be the very first perfect sacrifice and and based on that reality, the very last one of necessity. This would be the one God would say, "This one is absolutely perfect. It is well-pleasing to me." And it's 100% effective and accepted. This is why God is saying, "I am pleased with my son this is what he is doing it's a confident and bold statement about what jesus is going to do by his life death and resurrection jesus here is calling his shot in the face of the serpent make no mistake about it because i usually still steer far away from cheesy illustrations ask my wife i hate them when i hear them i cringe but I want, to say, I want to say this. If you find it to be cheesy, okay. But I think it makes the point. There is a story. It's probably a legend. Perhaps it's a story. If there are any baseball fan, I know Bill's a baseball fan. He can maybe verify this. But there is a story about Babe Ruth. Who apparently, Babe Ruth was not only the home run king, but the strikeout king. Apparently, to hit a lot of home runs, you got to strike out quite a bit. So not only did he hit more home runs than anybody in the majors, but he also struck out more. And in this particular game, they were playing in Chicago, and the Chicago fans were giving him a rough time. And at his last at-bat, Babe Ruth had struck out twice. He let two balls go by. And so fans are giving him a hard time, and what does he do? He points to the fence with his bat. So, of course, everybody goes nuts at that time. And the pitcher throws the ball, and, of course, Babe Ruth rips it over the fence right where he pointed to. Now, that does sound like a legend, doesn't it? But the point is this, there is a calling of a shot that is that the enemy is powerless to stop. And this is what Jesus is doing in this moment. Everything we see taking place is about this judgment and new creation that he will bring about regardless of what anyone has to say about it including the serpent who brought this on by deceiving the first Adam. He will not deceive the second Adam, which we're getting ready to see. And this is very important. Christ is calling his shot in the face of the serpent in the murky waters of the Jordan. But then what happens? Look at this next thing. That's water, this issue of judgment and new creation, which we are tied up in. But then there's the issue of wilderness. And you see very clear, again, parallels here between what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden and what Christ is doing here. This is a description of, of the temptation of Christ by the serpent. And the one who had whispered in Eve's ear was whispering again. And Mark does not include... This is, this is why we start to see there are, are lack of details here that Matthew and Luke fill in for us, which we'll, we'll look at some of them. But Mark leaves them out. And even what Jesus did via the Word of God to overcome these temptations. And that is important. So when I say what I'm getting ready to say, that does not discount the fact that, yes, to overcome temptation, you bury yourself in the Word of God. Not just at the time of temptation, but (laughs) every day. But Mark doesn't talk about that because the point here is... Not, not how we can fight off Satan, but it is about how the second Adam proclaimed what he was going to do and would soon crush the head of the serpent. Not yield to him, but crush him and undo and show that what he is doing is far superior than the failure of the first Adam. So where he went, look in verse 12. It says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That's... In keeping with Mark, what Mark does, that's, that's aggressive, fast-paced language. And when you compare it to what takes place with Adam in Genesis 1, it's striking. So in a very vivid and hurried way, he tells us that the Spirit drove him out. And again, this is not a lush forest. So we think of wilderness, we think of green trees and all that stuff, but that's not how the Bible uses that word. This is a God-forsaken desert place where the, the effects of the fall are clearly seen and acutely felt and heard. So this is a remi- where he is is a statement and a reminder about what sin has done to creation and how fitting it is that Christ steps onto the battlefield there because that's exactly what this is. This is not a forest, it's a battleground. And he's facing the serpent head on. So this is where we start to see the absolute necessity of the incarnation. If there's any hope for you and I, So, again, this is not about Jesus identifying with our temptations, though, yes, we are comforted by that fact. The author of Hebrews tells us that we should be comforted by the fact that he's been tempted, yet was without sin. But again, it's about him succeeding where Adam fell. Watch this in verse 13. What he experienced here he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and, when he was, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So this is where the parallels are perhaps most clearly seen in, in their opposite nature when you line them up with Genesis 1. Watch this. Adam was placed lovingly in a garden. Christ is driven into a God-cursed desert, a dry place. Very different. We're meant to see that. Mark means us to see. That's why there's no, there's no birth narrative necessarily in Mark, but there is a dealing with the incarnation, and it's right here. Adam is tempted once and fails. Mark lets us know that Jesus is tempted continually. And we'll talk about that in a second. Continually and wins. Adam had the companionship, of Eve Jesus is alone we say well the angels are ministering to him that's fundamentally different than having companionship with flesh and blood the fact that the angels were ministering to him tells us that what he was undergoing was hellish and extremely difficult Adam had animals that he had named that knew him and were friendly and had not yet suffered the deep effects of the fall around him. And what does Mark tell us? Why does he say he was with the wild animals? Because this is all about what sin has done to creation. This is the battlefield that Jesus is standing on. Adam watched as his bride was deceived and did nothing. That's what we sometimes miss in Genesis. When we see the serpent talking to Eve and giving her fruit from the tree we need to ask the question where was adam well the fact that she turned and gave him some means he was standing right there so adam watches as his bride is deceived and does nothing jesus is facing the serpent head on for his bride he's doing everything to protect her so these are intentional parallels that we're meant to see we are meant to see jesus as the second adam from above come to reinstate us in his love. Taking on the serpent for us. So Matthew and Luke fill out this. And what they tell us. I mean Matthew likely heard this firsthand from Jesus himself. Mark got it likely from Peter. What Matthew and Luke tells us is that Jesus fasted the entire time. Forty days. But here is what Mark tells us. is that Jesus was actually tempted the entire time. Matthew and Luke record the temptations they record that we see Satan laying out before Christ. If you'll do this, this will happen. And Jesus coming back at him with the Word of God. They record those after the 40 days. Now, Luke implies that Jesus was tempted the entire time, but Mark is implicit. He, He explicitly says 40 days being tempted by the devil tempted by Satan so satanic attack wild beasts hunger all of this together and you and I are utterly caught up in this scene because he is doing it for his people this is absolutely necessary and when we look at these two things the baptism of Christ the water in the temptation of Jesus, the wilderness. We are given two very important aspects of the gospel that we cannot miss. Because here's, it with, with the wilderness here, this is that display of perfect righteousness. That righteousness that is freely given to those who come to Christ in repentance and faith. Because here's what we need to understand. The gospel is not a message that tells us that Jesus makes us square with the house. That he brings us to zero. And then says, moving forward, keep up the good work. No, you must be actually, perfectly righteous your entire life to be fit to stand before God. We, we need this. We don't need to be set at zero. We need 100% perfect righteousness. And this is what Jesus is demonstrating for us as He overcomes the temptations that Satan throws at Him. So it, and in, in the water, it is about His sacrificial death, the judgment He would undergo for us to make us a new creation. So this is what theologians call the, the passive and active obedience of Christ. And again, He's, he's never passive. It's just referencing what was done to him and what he did. So, in the water, he's demonstrating his sacrifice for our being made new. In the wilderness, he's demonstrating his perfect obedience. His 100% keeping the law of God on our behalf to make us perfectly righteous before him. So it is the sacrificial death and the perfect life of Christ that we need that makes up the totality of the gospel. That is exactly what these two episodes show us. And when I think of the fact, we go back to that phrase I told you to cling to, that Jesus came. And you think of that phrase, Jesus came. And think of the fact that He is he came to call his shot in the face of the serpent, to completely identify with those he came to save, to undergo and undo everything that Adam had lost. It should make us want to cry out with the hymn writer, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came, ruined ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guys, it cannot get lost on us in the busyness of this time of year. And as awesome as it is, let me say that again I'm a kid, I love it. But it cannot get lost on us the battle that was fought for us. Why did He come in a manger to step onto the battlefield? to undo what was lost for us. So don't let the good things be detractors to the essential things. What we celebrate at this time of year is nothing less than the miracle of the incarnation seen vividly here in Mark chapter 1. This is what Jesus is doing, has done for his people. Now say again, this is your story. This gospel is for you. And when you think of that, I mean, in John's gospel, in this episode, when Jesus comes to be baptized, what does John do? As soon as he sees Jesus, blurts out of his mouth what explodes from his heart, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew who he was because the Spirit revealed to him who he was. So I ask you this morning, when you behold Jesus in that phrase, Jesus came, what do you see? What wells up in your heart? Do we understand why He came? Is it about candy canes and gingerbread cookies? As much as I love those, it's not. It's about water and wilderness and a cross in an empty tomb this is the fullness of the incarnation this is the second Adam from above who came to reinstate us in his love listen closely to the announcement the angels sing glory to this newborn king now you have Adam as your representative head we don't have a choice in that That's the way reality functions. That's how God has designed it. You have Adam as your representative head. The question is this. Is it the first Adam by whom sin and death came into the world? And remember, Adam was a king. God set him in the garden to rule over and to have dominion. He was a king who was defeated and therefore every one of his subjects, that's you and I, are caught up in that defeat. Or is it the last Adam who brought light and life to creation. This, this is what's amazing because this is why Paul wrote in Colossians 1.13. You think about this issue of kingdom. If Adam was the king, then there was a kingdom, right? That kingdom was defeated. It's now what is referred to the kingdom of darkness. And the serpent rules over that kingdom of darkness. That's why Paul was amazed in Colossians 1.13. He, he says it's a very good thing. That God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. It's all about whose king you sit under. Or which king you sit under, better said. You have a king. You have someone who represents you completely. Which king is it? May it be the king of kings, who came to undo what Adam did. Jesus came, not in the way the world expected it, not in the way his own people expected it. He came among the poor, the wretched, and the blind. Those he came to save. is an interesting phrase that Jesus says in Luke chapter 5, it is not the righteous but sinners I came to call. What in the world does that mean? It just very clearly states that you will never see your need for a Savior if you do not see your broken, ruined condition by the grace of God before Him. It is those who understand that as they stand before God, they are, like Isaiah said, ruined, undone. That they have no claim before Him on their own. Why is it that we need this alien righteousness, this other righteousness that only Christ can give us? Because ours as, is as filthy rags. It does not stand. And This morning, my hope is, was simply this, as I was invited, and again, what a great privilege it is to stand specifically here in this pulpit because we get every week such good gospel-centered preaching. My hope was that nothing more than Christ being exalted would be the end result of me standing here. But in such a way that your heart would be strangely moved and warmed to this king. And if you don't know this king, if you find yourself this morning as you examine yourself to be in the first Adam, remember again, you don't have a choice in being represented by someone, you are if you find yourself in this first Adam, my, heart, my heart's prayer is that God will by His Spirit open your eyes to see this and you will flee to Christ and be transferred into His kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved Son who has undone what Adam did for us. As we sing this morning, Tim and the worship team are going to come and, and uh, lead us in a, a closing song. Um, I'll be here briefly this morning at the front. If this is something you want to talk about, the elders will be here. They would love to talk to you about what this means. We invite you to come and simply be obedient. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for this time to hear your word. Father, I pray that you have given us ears to hear and a heart to respond. Father, we thank you this morning for the second Adam. Thank you that you did not leave us to simply languish under a king that was defeated and to live at our days in a kingdom of darkness. But Jesus has victoriously established a new kingdom. Father, I pray that you would be with those this morning who do not know Christ, that you by your Spirit would draw them effectually to yourself for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: By making it easier for the northern tribes to transfer their allegiance to him. But again, he had been, Michael had been taken away from him. Remember, that Saul took Michael away from him unlawfully, 1 Samuel 25. Verse 40, uh, 14, Then David sent messengers to ish Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. ish quick response is remarkable. Notice verse 15, And ish sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. So he submits to David in part, maybe because he recognized it was unlawful for Saul to take Michael away from David in the first place. But remember, Paltiel, who had now become Michael's husband, had cooperated with Saul. When Saul had taken uh, Michael from David, Paltiel had married Michael. So he had entered into an adulterous relationship. And so as we see him struggle to give her up, remember that. Verse 16, but her husband went with her, weeping after her, all the way to Barum. Then Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. It's easy to feel sorry for this man, but remember this. This is so important for our young people, especially. Relationships that begin with sin never end well. Unless there's been notorious repentance. Unless there's been, with repentance, there's restoration and renewal. But relationships that begin with sin never end well. You're drinking in poison. That relationship's dead even though it looks alive. William Blakely said, the tears of Paltiel would not have flowed now if that unfortunate man had acted honorably when Michael was taken from David in the first place. he had said, I am not going to marry another man's woman, another man's wife, this is David's wife. But with that said, what's more germane to the narrative here is that now with Abner, having offered a covenant to David... Ishbosheth giving over Michael, the rebellion against the true king is being brought underneath his feet. The kingdom, the peaceable kingdom is growing. Indeed, we see the strengthening of this peaceable kingdom and the preaching of the kingdom. We've got to move fast. Verse 17. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now... Bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Notice what he's doing. He's preaching the kingdom. This former enemy is preaching the good news of the kingdom of David. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron, all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. This is God's gracious and sovereign ending to the dark years started in the book of Judges when Israel had no king and they did that which was right in their own eyes. And and the marvel of God's grace here is that He permitted this rebel and all of those who followed Him, these rebels, to the true kingdom to return to His rule. After all that they had done, the insurrections, the rebellion. And maybe David was musing on this when he wrote Psalm 103. Maybe he was musing on these very events. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And and this grace provokes Abner to preach. The kingdom of David. When grace has taken hold, you don't have to have your arm twisted to evangelize. It's the knee-jerk response. And maybe more surprising than Abner preaching the kingdom of David is the welcome Abner receives from David. We close here, verses 20 to 21. Notice this. The strengthening of the peaceable kingdom and feasting with the king. Remarkable imagery here. Verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner. The same Abner who was a rebel? And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away, and he went in shalom. He went in peace, the peaceable kingdom. Quite a remarkable, besides the example that David is to us, of Romans at 12.18, If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as David is an example to us of learning to wait on the Lord, promise-driven waiting, knowing that God knows what he's doing, we can trust him in his timing with his purposes and plans for us. Besides all that, this is a beautiful, this is a glorious picture of the king treating Abner not as an enemy, but as an honored guest in the royal residence. The king prepares a feast for this former enemy. No condemnation for this former enemy. David is treating Abner not on the basis of his past, but on his grace. This is another hint of the nature of the kingdom of God and the true king. Former insurrectionists, former rebels, finding peace. The history of Abner's relationship with David could have been described in these words from Colossians 121, the Apostle Paul. You were alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works. That was Abner to David. Most recently, he was the main reason for the civil war in chapter 2 that we saw last last week. But now he's reconciled. Not by his own merits. He deserves nothing. But by the goodness of David. You were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled you. Of course, the reconciliation... That David secured only cost David to swallow his pride. That's all it cost him. David swallowed his pride and he reconciled with Adnor. But the greater reconciliation achieved by the greater David, where we are reconciled to God, required him not to drink, to swallow his pride because he had none it required him to drink the cup of god's wrath on our wicked pride and this text drives home as paul says in colossians 1 yet now he has reconciled you through the body of his flesh through death and this text Drives home that because the king absorbs the debt that we owe, there's no one here beyond the grace of God. There's plenty of Abners here. All of us were at one time Abners. Rebels to the king. Rebels to the kingdom. Believing that we had a better way. And this text drives home, there's grace for you. There's reconciliation. As Jesus will later say, Matthew 8, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at table. Who are the east and the west? Those are the Gentile nations who are in rebellion to God's kingdom. They will come and they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is the peaceable kingdom. But it's only for those who come to the king on his terms. And what are his terms? Repentance. Repentance towards God. Repentance of your sin and faith in the King. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who secured our reconciliation by his cross and his resurrection from the grave. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the Old Testament that's preparing us for the glory and the beauty and the, of the coming King, the one that we celebrate today. We pray this word would just take root in the hearts of every person here. Pray for those who are living in sin right now, that they would repent of their sin and submit to King Jesus. And I pray for those who haven't been saved, that today they would trust in King Jesus. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.